Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 276th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is John Hagenson. John is the founder of Keystone Wealth Partners, an independent REA with offices in Arizona and North Dakota that oversees $650 million of assets under management for nearly 1,000 client households. What's unique about John, though, is how he's one of the first non-lawyer financial advisors in the nation to build, own, and operate a law firm, which he then leverages along with his own tax firm to create a truly one-stop shop wealth management experience of financial planning, tax, and estate for his mass affluent clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about how the unrealized predictions of fee compression in the industry inspired John to concentrate on adding more measurable value for his clients with tax and estate services, how John's been able to leverage his all-in-one service offering to gain a faster pace of referrals, and how John's been able to grow to nearly 1,000 clients in barely more than a decade through a multi-pronged education-based marketing strategy that utilizes informational webinars, in-person events, and making a big investment into a weekly radio show. We also talk about how John transitioned from a career as an airline pilot, but still incorporates the same systematized checklist-oriented mindset to build standard processes for his own business. How John's become comfortable with the idea of not being the right fit as an advisor for every prospect he meets. And how John has found a sense of renewal for himself after a trip to Ethiopia made him look internally and evaluate his purpose in life and the potential impact of his money. And be certain to listen to the end, where John shares how the growth of his business led to a mindset shift to focus more on the collective team after realizing how dependent he had become on hiring the right people. How John believes in utilizing the talents and resources afforded to us to help uplift others rather than just himself and how John's plans for the future are centered on a potential merger to scale up even further to expand his all-in-one services across the country. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with John Hagenson. Welcome, John Hagenson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really excited about today's episode and, and talking about what it means to try to be a one-stop shop to clients. I, I I feel like that's a label that the industry has used for a long time to try to say, like, you know, we're comprehensive financial planners, we'll cover everything, we advise on everything. That that's that's why we're the comprehensive planners that we are, and we got this one-stop shop offering. But then when when you kind of dig into it further, it's usually like we're not literally the one-stop shop. It usually morphs into, well, well, really, we're the quarterback that interacts with all the other professionals. Like we're we're not actually a an accounting firm. We don't prepare returns. We're not actually a law firm. We don't we don't do the estate planning documents, but we help you with the tax planning and the estate planning and the insurance and the investments and all the things that are are under the financial planning umbrella. And I know that you have gone a little bit of a different direction in really actually trying to be the one-stop shop. Like having the CPAs on staff, having the lawyers on staff, which I want to ask you more about because as far as I always knew, you actually can't do that because there are laws about non-lawyers owning law firms. 
And so I know you have gone this route of trying to really operate as this one-stop shop effect by having the lawyers, by having the accountants on staff. And so just I'm excited to talk today about like how you bring that together. I mean, I know we can all say on paper, like, wouldn't it be cool if we just had all the people under our, one umbrella? But then you have to actually have to actually structure it and manage it and figure out the pricing and figure out the staff structure. And there's a lot that goes into making that happen. And so really appreciate you joining us today to be able to talk about what it takes to actually try to deliver on that one-stop shop promise. Yeah, well, I think in general, the industry as a whole has drifted to very low costs or you need to figure out ways to add additional value because we haven't seen that fee compression that I think a lot of people have expected that may come down the road. But I think we've seen value compression, like just in the sense that it's difficult now to maybe do what we were doing 15 years ago and say, we're going to charge hundred basis points. So it's, do I want to get really good at one thing and have this niche where if somebody fits that I'm the best, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering deep value that others can't compete with, or how can I add additional value propositions that clients care about and differentiate from, you know, the masses that you're competing against? Well, I think you make an interesting point around, we've had all this discussion for particularly the last 10 years that fee compression is here, fee compression is inevitable between the the compression in investment costs, right, for mutual funds uh, moving to ETFs and even the downward pressure on ETFs to the, the, the arrival of the robo-advisor that was supposed to collapse the, the 1% AUM fee. And then you look 10 years later and basically fees haven't moved, like just the average revenue yield. If you take all the revenue of the typical advisory firm and divide it into the total assets, it, it, it basically hasn't moved a basis point in, in 10 years. But what I do see happening real time is, as you put it well, like the value compression is there. Like doing the same thing we were doing 10 years ago to get that full fee today is a lot harder to justify than it was before. But the response for the industry, by and large, has not been, okay, well, then we're just going to accept the pressures of fee fee compression and cut our fees as well. Instead, it's been this kind of value expansion, value add, like, then I'm going to value add my way back up and I'm going to defend my 1%. I'm going to do what it takes now to get back to that line with with the caveat that some firms I find actually add so much value and they end up raising their fees at the end of it because they realize like we're doing so much now. I'm not even sure that 1% fee cuts it anymore. But this phenomenon that we were supposed to be fee compressed and instead we just, just value added our way up instead to me has been a really interesting shift in how all the technology has played out over the past decade. Well, and I think the tangible value adds are important because we operate in a world where we ask clients to trust us and pay us an ongoing advisory fee and basically say, you know, you really can't evaluate us from an investment standpoint for 10 or 20 years. You know, it's like, well, I, I noticed against this benchmark, you've been underperforming for three years. You say, well, three years isn't near long enough. Uh, long enough. I mean, look at the growth value cycles and, you know, uh, that doesn't really tell you anything. So they say, wait a second. So I'm supposed to pay you. <laughs> And have no idea because anytime I ask whether we're doing better or worse because I've hired you from a performance standpoint, you just tell me I have to wait longer and continue to pay you. And so when you bolt on services that are valuable to people and they understand tangibly, you're going to have a CPA and an attorney and a CFP all sitting in this conference room discussing in coordination with one another, my estate plan, my tax plan, my financial plan. You're then going to draft estate documents that I need done from that attorney that knows everything about my situation, you're then going to file my tax returns from the same CPA that just built the mock tax return for my Roth conversion in the fall. Okay, I, I see where there's going to be measurable value. And 
also is going to make my life a whole lot easier than driving across town to try to explain to my CPA what my advisor just told me to do that I don't understand or I don't want to have to understand. And they couldn't pick each other out of a lineup, let alone have any sort of integration on the planning. And so it's it's important that when you're saying pay us this fee and we're going to add value and excess to what you're paying to have some tangible things that they go, oh, I, I, I could see that. That makes sense to me. And is that thought process was was literally your journey as to why bring in CPAs, why bring in attorneys in-house? Was it the kind of a conscious decision of, yes, we're managing portfolios, but the cycles of how those get evaluated just plays out over too long. I need things that I can show service value over over more finite time periods. Hey, this legal work, this tax work, this stuff we can show value year to year. So this is where we're going to go. It was partly that, and it was partly that I think that is where the primary value lies for most clients. Okay. Meaning I don't think we're differentiating a whole lot as an advisor community by saying we're going to beat the markets. We're going to trade individual stocks. I mean, some people maybe can do it. I think that's very difficult. And so I think where you actually truly are adding more value, not just from an optic standpoint, but for the end client is by saying, we understand your tax situation. We are involved in an ongoing estate plan. You know, I mean, most people are going to an attorney and, you know, they spend a couple thousand bucks and they basically wheel their estate plan out of the office in a wheelbarrow as the attorney's saying, you know, like refer your friends and family, let us know if you need anything. And they just go set it on their, you know, on a shelf in their home office and it collects dust for 10 years. And so I think, you know, when you say that to somebody, they go, yep, that's exactly my situation. And you say, well, wouldn't it be helpful to have an attorney involved? Like, you know, so when your kids go from being 17 to 18, or you have two new grandkids, or you don't even like Johnny anymore, you want everything to go to Susie, you know, like that there's somebody involved in that and being proactive in your planning, it should be dynamic. And so I think that's something that people understand has been deficient in their planning. And it's very attractive to have those professionals all working on their behalf. So I get it conceptually, right? I mean, I think a lot of us have felt the draw in that direction. Then you just get down to the CPAs are not inexpensive, <laughs> attorneys are not inexpensive sure. to have on, on staff, and and I also got to do all the all the advisory stuff as well. So how does this come together in practice? Can you maybe just start by talking to us a little bit more about the advisory firm itself? Just like what do you do? How are you structured? What's the size of the firm and the client base? Like help paint us the picture of the firm, and then and then we can dig even a little bit further into. How does this actually work from a, a staff and team structure with all these different departments? Absolutely. So we started in 2014. I left an independent broker dealer, wasn't feeling a lot of excitement or passion for what I was doing, didn't have a lot of conviction, thought there was a better way to do it. Started Keystone. Uh, we're at about 650 million right now of AUM. We have a team of 30 people. So three attorneys, three CPAs and EAs, about eight CFPs, a CFA. And we also have a one of our CFPs is a doctorate in psychology and heads up sort of a behavioral finance component of the practice that we think is important as well. Our average client's around 60 years old. Yeah, our average advisor age is about 36. So we're a young firm in terms of the age of our CFPs and CPAs and, and attorneys. And so how, how many clients and with the asset base? About a thousand. Okay. And, and total asset base is? 650 million. Okay. 650 million. So just kind of doing my napkin math, like 650 million across a thousand clients. So average household is 650,000. So you're, you're kind of living squarely in at least what, what the industry would call the, the mass affluent space, the kind of hundred thousands to million dollar investable asset space. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's like a lot of firms in the sense that we have kids of clients and some things like that. So I, I mean, our typical kind of active clients, probably closer to a million, but right in that range. Exactly. And, and I think that's also why our offering has been so attractive because if someone has a million dollars, they haven't up to this point expected to have this depth of service, right? So they, they're sort of thinking, well, I, I understand if somebody's a high net worth client that they're going to have a lot of this integration. But for the person that's the millionaire next door, they, they have been driving all around town trying to coordinate these things. And so there's, I think that it's a very unique offering for the size of clients that we have. So now help us understand how this comes together. I think I want to actually just start on the, like the, the pricing and fee structure end. So is this a, you like kind of a la carte services, here's our investment management fee for investment management. And then here's our, our document fee, if you want to state documents and here's our tax return fee, if you want a tax return. Like, is it, is it charged by the service or is this all bundled under one AUM fee or is it a little bit of a mix and match? Like, how do you start bringing pricing together when you're, when you're trying to deliver all this? Sure. So existing clients, when we started the tax practice, we just said, here's an extra fee. If you'd like to do it with us, we didn't increase their AUM charges for all new clients. Once it was started, the, the underlying AUM costs were a little bit higher and it includes taxes. And they're not required to do taxes with us, but they're paying the same fee. So pretty much everyone does. And we think that's a value to them to have that integration. And then from an estate planning standpoint and a tax document standpoint, all the all the guidance and advice, there, there's no extra cost. So if an attorney's sitting in there, I mean, they're not billing hourly, obviously, or anything like that. But But if they need a new trust or they need documents... We do charge separately for that, and that's a compliance thing, right? So that that's per the bar association. Like we can't do legal work and then essentially be reimbursing back through a financial planning firm. So we have to keep that totally separate. And these are all three separate LLCs. Oh, interesting. So so the bar itself, I guess, from the legal ethics perspective, I guess I'm also envisioning like it's it's the it's the legal version of the fee only framework. Like the fee has to be paid directly by the client. You can't quote unquote give legal services that get reimbursed by the financial planning or covered by the financial planning entity. Clients got to be billed and pay and pay directly. Yeah, I mean, you've had you've had scenarios where attorneys that I've read about would would say, "All right, we're doing all this estate planning work for you," and at the end of all the estate planning work, you know, they need some massive life insurance policy, and they're an insurance agent. So, like, right. oh, don't even worry about paying the legal fees because we're going to make three hundred thousand dollars on this life insurance commission. Right. Yeah, the the bar doesn't look favorably at that, <laughs> right? Because it's, so it's, it's considered an inducement, basically. Right. So, so it started there and then it evolved into, right. I mean, I don't think it's quite the same level when you say clients has hired us for a holistic wealth management service of which we collect one, one centralized fee and, and, and dole a part of it out for the legal services, probably not quite the same kind of conflict as the insurance sale they were trying to limit, but you get the same rule that you've got to comply with, which is the legal documents have to be charged separately. Exactly. And you said this is three separate LLCs. So I guess just from a practical perspective, like three separate LLCs that like roll up to one, that roll up to one holding company, you, or you just like you literally walk around with three different business entities and gotta <laughs> gotta file returns across all of them and figure out how to allocate costs across all of them and and handle that across each separate entity. Basically, I mean, this is why it's nice to have minority partners in both of the other businesses that are lawyers and CPAs <laughs> because they they have to figure some of that stuff out. But yeah, the the idea is basically that we want to be very clear with clients that these are three separate businesses that are all working with one another. Why? I, I mean it's like why why the need to 
explain to clients that these are separate but working together as opposed to these are all in one working Well, I mean, I think just purely from a liability standpoint too, do I want someone's tax return to be messed up? And then, you know, they come in and say that there's, you know, there's some legal implications that could happen in terms of affecting the RIA too. So I think part of it is just having three separate, you know, contained entities. Now for the estate planning, the law firm, that has to be a separate entity, right? So I mean, that, that's okay. not even an option. Like that would have to be. But when we were setting up the tax practice, I have a different ownership structure as well. I have the CPA as a minority owner of the tax practice. He doesn't have ownership in the RIA. So you know that was part of it as well, is just that we have different ownership structures on the different entities for the operating partners. Okay. Because part of the incentive for, I guess, for a CPA that wants to build with you and, and run run the tax practice portion of the firm is that they can actually be an equity partner in the tax practice. Exactly. You originally, you had a base AUM fee, you rolled out tax, you started charging them separately for the tax service. Then you adjusted the AUM fee and just said, this is going to be bundled in all in one for the for the tax services. So can you talk to us about what the what the AUM fee structure is or, or even like what what was it and what did you go to as you tried to figure out how to reconfigure your fee structure for the new service? Sure. Yeah. So we we are one and a half percent on the first million. We're one percent. It's graduated. We're one percent from a million to two, and then fifty basis points above two million. So the the one and a half percent on the first million, at least relative to the the proverbial one percent benchmark fee in the industry, having a higher fee schedule on the first million is part of just this is how we price. Having a more premium all in one service is we're we're a little bit more expensive on the ba- on the base tier, and you're you're getting what you pay for. In, in additional services. Yeah, I mean that's that's part of it. And I think so often, you know, we see people coming in from one of the big broker dealers and you know, they're at 1.35, maybe it's tiered down a little bit and they're in proprietary funds that are 65 basis points and you know, and they've got these other these other fees and they're meeting once a year getting an annual review and they're not having any tax integration and they're really not getting a lot of financial planning. And so we're around the same price and we're doing so much more. So we I mean, we have absolutely zero objections around our costs. Now, maybe some people just say, eh, that seems kind of high. We're not going to work with you. And that's fine. You know, that's not, that hasn't impacted our growth in any way. We're growing just as fast as we possibly can keep up with. Because at the end of the day, just you don't compare the same time. I mean, even, I guess, even if a firm wants to try to price shop you and compare you, like just, you don't do the same thing because you actually have tax and legal in-house and they don't. Yeah. I just think money moves to value, right? I mean, especially if you want to retain clients long-term, I mean, you can have good marketing and say, we do these things, but if you don't do them well, you'll lose clients. And so our retention rates high and our acquisitions you know, of, of new clients just organically are as fast as we can keep up with right now. So you know, I, I don't think it would be sensible to say, well, let's price our stuff down when we're not needing additional growth from where we're at right now. So help me understand how this works just from the the servicing perspective, like a thousand clients is a lot of clients, whether that's doing returns and, and I guess a thousand clients across three CPAs and presumably not not every client does tax prep work. So that's a couple hundred returns per CPA, which is not not that unusual during tax season. That's a heavy load, but not not unheard of. But is is that is that how it breaks out? Like you, every couple hundred clients, you're going to have to hire another CPA to to handle the annual tax season. Oh, it's right around that. Yep. And and then how does it work on the legal end? Yeah. So 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 that's actually something that we're continuing to scale. I mean, we have we haven't talked about where our offices are, but we have an office in 
a couple offices in North Dakota and a couple in Arizona. And so, you know, obviously legal is a different animal in the sense that you have to be licensed in specific states, right? It's, it's very state specific, unlike being an SEC registered investment advisor. And so there are some unique challenges with out of state clients where we're not able to actually do the offering at the same level as in Arizona. So, you know, one of the things is Arizona is very unique in the sense that just about a year ago, they're the only state to my knowledge still, I know the, they were the first at the time that allow non-owner or non-attorneys, I should say, to own a law firm. And, and I think it's a decent proxy that, I mean, this could spread to other states. I think other states are watching this and saying, how is this sort of going to work? But I think it'll be a huge opportunity for advisors listening to this who are in different states if that becomes available. Oh, because part just part of the practical constraint as, as an advisor, if you didn't happen to start this career by getting your law degree originally, is for most states, you you couldn't bring the tax in-house because you can't pay it from the planning fees. It has to be paid directly by the client per legal ethics. An advisor can't own a law firm. So there just really was no way to bring it in-house, really? Absolutely. There wasn't. I mean, you could office share. So what we were doing prior to this law changes that we had a, we have a sister company who we office shared in one of our Arizona offices. And, you know, we'd basically walk them across the lobby to do legal work. And that was the best thing that we could offer right. prior, but I couldn't retain any of the revenue. I couldn't control the experience from the client perspective as well as I wanted to. And so once that became available, we were one of the first, I think five or 10, you know, non-lawyers to own a law firm in the country. Because I knew that that was going to be a huge opportunity for us to just deepen the value that we were bringing by having better synergies. Because I think so often you use the quarterback example, like sometimes that can work really well. And then other times, you know, I know from my experience prior to, to having it structured the way we are now, I, I kind of, you know, had to self-reflect and go, Ugh, like, am I being a great quarterback? Like, you know what I mean? Somebody's like, I'm not really happy with how my estate planning and the responsiveness of the attorney, you know, and you're going, I wish I had more control over that. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I think that was a that was really valuable for us to to be able to better deliver, not just say like, oh, we're going to do this for you. You know, we will help you do this or or we'll be a part of this at a small level. It's like, no, we will do all of this for you. So how does this work from a client service perspective? Like I you had mentioned at one point kind of the the phenomenon of having everybody in the room at once or like the the client sitting across from a CFP who's doing the planning work, a CPA who's doing the the tax work, and a an attorney who's going to do their estate planning work. But are you literally structured that way? Like clients have three person teams, and every time the client comes in, three people are in the meeting. How does the structure work from a servicing perspective? Usually, one or two CFPs in the room for a typical planning meeting, and then they'll have the one of the CPAs or attorneys looped into a meeting generally once a year, depending on what's going on. Certainly at the beginning of the relationship. I mean, we're onboarding a lot of new clients right now. You and I both know there's a lot more work involved in, in yep. building out an initial plan. And so, I mean, that's really, you know, it takes a lot of, of time. Once the plan is built out, then it's generally, you know, hey, here's the cadence of our year. Here's when we do certain things, depending, you know, assuming that nothing huge is happening in your life that dictates something different. And this is when you'll meet with the CPA during the year. This is when we'll loop in the attorney. You know, sometimes it's just you're in that that client review meeting and going through things and something comes up that's important around their estate plan. And, and then that that CFP is either going to say, well, you know, let's set up another meeting with the three of us. Or you know what, that's something that you can probably just have the attorney answer in 15, 20 minutes. Why don't we just set up a call when you're leaving out of the front desk, you know, and, and have the attorney call you. So it it, it looks a little bit different. But you will have on an annual basis some interaction 
with all three of those departments, so to speak, or professionals. So it, it sounds like there is still, to a large effect, a kind of the CFP financial planner is the the quote unquote quarterback, but they're not quarterbacking across a whole bunch of affiliated professionals. They're they're just literally leading the relationship internally and quarterbacking across internal services of the firm. But but there's still one one advisor who's the relationship lead. Like is that a fair characterization? It is. Okay. So how many lead advisors exist in your in your structure? About eight. Okay. So our actual client to advisor ratio is quite good, you know, from that standpoint for per the industry, especially because when there are tax needs, our lead advisors are involved, but they're handing that off to a CPA to build mock tax returns, to look at projections, to to pull their old returns, to look right. So so you know, you can service people at a really deep level when you have these other extremely high level professionals that are experts in their fields who are available for these clients that are a part of the team. You know, it's a, it's the same idea of just having you know para planners that you can downstream things that you know aren't as important for you to do as a client facing advisor. Um, and, and we have those too, by the way. So we have you know we have some para, we have a couple of para planners that assist the lead advisors, and then we obviously have the attorneys and, and uh, CPA. So what does the rest of the staff structure look like? Like I'm just struck you you. You had said 30 team overall, and there's a half a dozen that are CPAs and attorneys, and eight that are lead advisors, and a few more that are para planners. So not not a huge number of kind of operations investment back office staff. So what it, what does the rest of the staffing structure look like? Yeah, we've we've got five or six client service representatives. Uh, we call them account managers. We have three what we would call client coordinators that are scheduling, greeting, you know, seating people and and doing a whole lot of other things around our marketing. We have an operations manager, we have a director of marketing, and we have a portfolio manager who's a CFA. And and so how does the portfolio like how does the actual portfolio investment management process work for you? Cuz I I see some firms that have 650 million under management that have a you know a, a six person team of Investment analysts and traders. It sounds like you're you're down to like one core person <laughs> that leads the charge. So talk to us a little bit more about what the what the investment offering is at the firm. Sure, and he has a support person on his side as well, but he's le- he is leading it. And yeah, we don't have you know a team of four CFAs or something like that. Well, I mean, our philosophy is you know globally diversified, broadly low cost index funds and ETFs. Use DFA, Vanguard, iShares, rebalance systematically, and other than legacy assets, I mean, we'll 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 transfer client new client assets in in kind, and for tax reasons, there are scenarios where we don't want to, you know, it, we shouldn't be selling them, but we're not building actively traded individual stock models for clients. It's not our philosophy. We don't think we add value there. I think it's very difficult for anyone to add value there. I'm sure some people do it well, but that is a core part of our story is if you're approaching or in retirement, we want to manage risk. And one of the ways we can manage risk is stay very diversified in low cost funds and basically buy the whole market. And as long as the world doesn't end, you're likely not to blow up your plan. And so that doesn't take, you know, so when you're leveraging DFA and Vanguard and these, these, you know, index funds and ETFs, the portfolio manager's job is really just to be rebalancing portfolios, deploying new cash. We do some tax loss harvesting. That's obviously a busy time when we're doing things like that, but we can accomplish that quite easily. Now we leverage Tamarack. I mean, you know, our, our, we have we're spending a lot of money on software to ensure that these things are getting done efficiently and leveraging technology. And so Tamarack becomes your hub for both the performance reporting side and just the raw rebalancing and and I guess trade management model management for you. Yeah, I mean, and that's obviously the the deflationary pressures that that exist, you know, pervasively throughout throughout the world. I mean, I, I was talking with our our portfolio manager and he's saying, John, 
you know, 15 years ago, I mean, we would have needed like 10 people to manage this money. I mean, there's just no, like, there's no way, but he's, he's got everything built out. So systematized within Tamarack that he can do things that would have taken, would have taken so much time, even a decade ago. And, and it's so much more efficient and so much more accurate. You know, there's so much less room for error on it as well. Yeah, I'm just struck. I mean, you're you so effectively like a portfolio manager plus plus an investment support person is is actively handling all the trading and implementation for for a thousand client account for I say a thousand client accounts, but more than that, a, a thousand a thousand clients and more than a thousand accounts because obviously some people have multiple accounts. Yep. That's how we do it. And it's worked great. I mean, we're, we're sort of hitting a, a point right now where we're going to need to add another person to that team. But even then, I mean, you'd be saying, well, John, you only have one and two people, you know, th- like, it's not like we're, we're looking to need to a scenario where we're going to need seven people on that team anytime soon. I was saying, and just you're, you're comfortable with how that continues to grow and, and scale for you. Do you, do you, do you look at a world of outsourcing or, or using TAMPS or say, no, I don't really need to, because we're so efficient with the software we're just going to keep scaling it internally. I think we'll just scale it internally. But but we will need to add people to that de- department obviously, you know, moving forward. And so just in this world where a lot of folks are talking more about, you know, p- portfolio customization, portfolio personalization, it sounds like you guys are are not necessarily in that camp. Portfolios are are pretty standardized around the Vanguard and DFA models that you're that you're building because the whole point is the value add is is the planning and the tax and the legal work. It's not the portfolio that just happens to be the 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 anchor part to it because you know have money needs to land somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that we we've all seen the Dalbar studies. I mean, the, the primary value proposition is helping people be educated around what's important in their plan. And so that they have confidence and clarity and they're not you know, losing sleep at night because they're worried about market volatility or they're making emotional decisions. I mean, they can do everything right for 10 or 15 years. They make one bad move and it blows up the plan. And so we think building a low cost portfolio that we can well educate our clients on why things are where they are, what their level of risk is exactly, what they can expect. You know, I tell people all the time. If we work together 20 or 30 years, we're going to have 5, 10, 15 down years. It's going to be Christmas Eve and you're going to be looking at your statements and say, well, I got less money than January. You know, why am I, why are we paying Keystone right now? Now, fortunately about twice as often, you'll look at your stuff at Christmas and say, well, I got a lot more money than January. This is working out. Right. So, so we know that we have to set proper expectations because frustration is the gap between expectation and reality. So we spend significant time with our clients at the onset, you know, during the onboarding process, as well as ongoing of continuing to set healthy expectations for what we are going to do for them, where we're going to add value, what could derail it. And so when the market does what it did in March of 2020, our clients, I mean, nobody likes it, right? But, but our clients aren't going, what are we going to do now? We're saying, they're just saying, are we going to execute all the things that you told me we were going to do when this happened? You know, cause we're telling them it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. And so we think that that is the proper way to invest for most people. Now, do, do some people want more customization and, and they want you know ESG investing and they want individual stocks? Probably they won't be clients of ours. And, and, and it doesn't mean they're wrong and we're right. It's just, we're, we're sort of happy to say, hey, that's, that's great for you. Like, that's not what we do here. You know? And I'm totally comfortable having somebody leave that meeting and say, Keystone's not the right fit. And, and I'm fine with that. I was saying just, and you're, and you're, and you're fine with that. It doesn't make you want to build in a little more flexibility to try to capture some of these people that are coming in and leaving because you're you're insisting they use your models when they wanted more customization. 
Absolutely. I mean, I I look at it and say, every person we meet with, we want to share with them where we think we can help them, but I'm not trying to shoehorn someone in to convince them to become a client of ours. In fact, there's many meetings that I have with, with prospective clients where I I go through some of the analysis and I tell them, Hey, here's how I think, you know, you could improve your situation. We're not going to be the right fit for you. So like there is no opportunity for us to work together because we're too far apart on some pretty core philosophical things. But there are some other firms out there that I think would be a really good fit. And, and maybe it is because they want to trade individual stocks. So they want to be very active or they don't believe that, you know, a diversified approach is the way to go and they want to be all growth. You know, okay, that's cool. We're not going to do that. So there's other firms that'll do it. And I think, you know, when you get out of the scarcity mindset of saying, how can I try to get every single person to become a client and start thinking more around, we've got a lot of people interested in our firm. We're just looking for the people that actually are a good fit and probably going to stay for a long time because it's a good fit. So all of that is predicated on, well, I get not having a scarcity mindset, but sometimes there's also just a raw a raw math of just, are, are we getting enough prospects in the door that we can say no and still capture enough growth opportunity to have healthy growth as a firm? So I, I feel like the, the other side of this is just, you seem to have a lot of confidence in the, the marketing side of the firm that if you're saying no to these people, it's cool, there's going to be more prospects. Well, uh, yeah, I think what's the saying, if you want to be something to everybody, you're nothing to no one or something like that. I think I butchered it. But but I mean, I think too, if you're true and authentic to what your offering is and you're confident in that offering, you're really just looking for people that that, that receive that and say, this is, this is really what we're looking for. But yeah, I mean, I, I bet you all of us can think of different clients over the course of us being financial advisors that we sort of knew were kind of mean. Right. Like this person's kind of grumpy. They're mad that there's dark chocolate in the lobby instead of milk chocolate, you know, or whatever. And you you know what I'm talking about, Michael. And so, yeah, yeah, but you're kind of like, oh man, you know, I've got a family to feed. Like, like we've got employees, like we got it. And the whole time they're signing documents, you know, and they're complaining that you gave them a pen that writes in blue instead of black. You know, you're, you're going this is going to be a disaster. Like this is good, but uh, we, we'll be able to mark on our tracking sheet that we we closed another client. Like, you know what I mean, we got a new client and it's like, you know, intuitively, that's not going to be somebody that everybody's happy having as a client 10 years from now, but we do it. And as a result, we start, you know, we'd start basically cropping up in our garden of all these pretty flowers. And we're just like, they just choke everything out. I mean, I think we all know that a few bad clients or, and, and this applies to building a team with 30 people, a few bad team members can really, you know, disproportionately ruin an otherwise good culture. And I mean, we've all been on the golf trip with, you know, seven friends and six of them are awesome. And like one guy's there and you're just like, why is this guy here? It's like somebody's brother-in-law, right? It's like from the movie, the hangover or something. That's like, why is this guy here? And, um, and, you know, and it, it can ruin the whole trip. Like everybody else is really cool, but there's that guy, you know, and, and the same thing happens with clients and with, with your team. So you want to be really careful, I think, of who is entering the practice. So help us understand the other side of this, which is just where does the growth come from for you that you at the end of the day can still be confident of, yep, just going to move on from this prospect. It's okay. There is more fish in the sea. I think traditionally in our profession, I think we have this weird stigma where it's like, I'm a fee-only CFP, so I shouldn't market. That's beneath me, 
like people are going to just refer me and find me. I think there's a little bit of that. I could be wrong, but I think that that's a little bit of the, the mindset sometimes. You know, early on, I was spending 25, 30% of revenue on marketing. We still spend 15% or 10% a year at a minimum on marketing. And it's all education-based marketing. We basically give a bunch of information that we think is valuable for free. And some of the people go, that's interesting. I don't want to do this myself. My current advisor doesn't talk about any of these things. It's resonating with me. What would it look like to work with you? I at least want to have an, have a conversation. So for example, last year, we had 800 first appointments. We had set, out of those 800, about a little less than 500 uh, qualified you know, it was just a good fit after the first visit. They weren't talking about how the world was going to end and they're burying everything in the backyard. And, you know, so we went through the, the, what we call our retirement map review, which is basically, you know, the, the, the Kitsis and Carl, you know, one page financial plan. And so, so we, we do that. It's, it's a very high level analysis. And from that, we had 204 new clients, 170 million of new monies, all from organic growth last year alone. All right. So I've got lots of questions about <laughs> where 800 first appointments comes from, right? That's, uh, you know, roughly 250 working days in the year. So like that's, that's three prospect, like that's three prospect appointments every single day of the entire year, including holidays. So just where does that come from? Where does that flow come from? Let me start by saying I, I really believe that any advisor can create this level of lead flow. And no, by the way, I'm not selling a, a, an advisor marketing program. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. Like, I really actually think that what we're doing, I think we do it really well, and we have experience doing it now. But I don't think it's something that just no one else can do, right? Because I think sometimes people hear that number and they're like, "Well, 800 first appointments, like that's pretty crazy." But it's coming from a, a, a multi pronged approach. So about 40 percent comes from radio. So we have a radio show that's on the weekends. You know, a lot of people are like, radio doesn't work. That's what's funny, by the way, about our marketing, Michael, is that so many people around our channels, the sort of sentiment is none of this stuff works anymore. And I'm like, I don't know, we added 170 million of new monies like doing these things. So like they do work, you know? So 40% came from a, from a radio show, 20% client referrals. So we're getting, you know, significant 30 30, 40 million a year just in one client telling another, right? So, and, and I think that's due to the depth of offering and us actually delivering on what we tell them they're, we're going to do for them. 20% from webinars and 20% from in-person events. So talk to us a little bit more about each of these and just how how these work in in practice. So let's let's kind of start on the radio end because I, I mean I think you said it well. Like there's a there's a lot of pessimism out there I find right now around around radio and every everything from just you know that's an old channel. This is the new this is the new modern world down to sort of this I guess the the slightly more practical like radio was the thing of the past, but podcasting's the future now. So, so talk to us about radio. Like what, what are you doing that's working with radio? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, people point to a mutual fund store or, or Edelman and they're like, oh, well that just worked before. Right. I mean, I think those firms would, you know, I think Rick Edelman would say, oh, radio has been okay. You know, yeah. so, <laughs> you know, 20 billion later. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So like it does work. I mean, I think, and, and I don't want to overweight how I what I do personally on it in terms of my skill, because I think there's, there's people that are way better than me on radio. Like I'm not some unique radio talent by any means, but I've also heard shows where, I mean, it, it's literally like a CFP reading from a script in a monotone voice, right? Like, like no one's interested in getting a first appointment from that person. So like, I mean, I do think that it has to be like a little bit entertaining. Now people, you know, I'm 38 years old. So people my age are, are going like, John, who listens to radio, you know? And I'm, I'm looking at them going, your parents, 
which is who my clients are. Like, I don't want you 35 year old as a client. You're not our, our ideal client for our practice. Like we want your dad who's retiring and your mom. And so, and they are listening to radio. And so, you know, the whole radio show is basically me giving information out that I think is that's relevant that I, that we've experienced. I mean, when you're doing 800 first appointments, you hear a lot of stuff. When you're doing 475, you know, retirement maps, you see a lot of things. I incorporate a ton of those experiences, obviously, you know, redacting the names and specific circumstances that would be identifiable of things that I'm seeing and things that we told them to do and things that they've been able to do to improve their situation. And so people like this sort of voyeuristic, I mean, think about this podcast. It's basically like me opening up what I do with my firm and other people listening saying, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I can grab one or two things that are helpful from this podcast, right? And so we enjoy that. And so the radio show has really been built around storytelling of just practical things and then saying, here's, if that applies to you, here's some things you could be looking for. If you've got questions or you don't think your CPA, you know, you you just, you don't really do this. You just kind of take your organizer and march to your CPA with your documents and they just file it, but they never talk to you about these things. We will, you know, so like schedule a visit. It's free. And that's basically in short, the premise of the radio show. So it, it's a one hour show. How often does it run? It, well, I'm on about, right now it's about 12 to 15 stations and it's once a week on the weekends. And and so you like you have to, is it live? You have to go in once every weekend to do it? Or is this, uh, I get to record it from my office and send them an audio file and they, they just do their thing when it's time. Recorded. I record them on Thursdays. Okay. Okay. So I, I guess functionally it's like you record it like a podcast. It just gets distributed on the air. Exactly. And I know even like Edelman, that's how he did it, right? He'll take live calls. But if you listen at the start, it's like, you know, the broadcast was pre-recorded and pre-screened. You know, I mean, like, I, there there aren't a lot of, and by the way, I think if certain advisors are going, well, I wouldn't want to do a radio show because that's, you know, that's kind of a fear of saying, wait, a live show? Like, what if I say something crazy? Like, what if, you know what I mean? And so you don't have to have that concern because- it's all done ahead of time. So you really don't need to worry about that part of it. You know, you could you can you can take things out if you say, "Oh, well, I shouldn't have said that." You know. Does that make it easier I would imagine just from a compliance perspective as well? Like any compliance officer that wants to review can review stuff before it actually goes out as opposed to being live on the air and who knows what questions are going to come in? Exactly. It'd be tough to do that and, you know, not over a five-year period, say something, you know, of doing a weekly radio show where you're like, oops, like I probably shouldn't have said that, you know? Um, So you don't have to worry about that. And so what are the typical themes that that you're covering? Like what, just tell us more what you're talking about. It can be everything from something more, you know, technical or in the weeds on just like, hey, what's a donor advised fund? Like, how does it work? Like, you know, and people, you know, and then we'll get people, they'll call in like, oh, that's really interesting. Like I hadn't, I hadn't really ever heard of that before, you know? So, so it might be something like that. It might be, you know, bracket maximization around taxes. And then obviously the radio show is to be educational, but I know the average person listens to a radio show for seven minutes at a time. So every seven minutes I'm, I'm positioning a, a transition of why they should call and get our retirement map review. And so it's like, it'll, it would be like, Hey, here's an idea. You know, when's the last time your CPA reviewed your tax return and people are listening going, uh, gosh, like they don't, they just file my taxes. And then I say, you know, if you don't really like the answer to that question, give us a call. We will. And that's basically it, you know, the, the approach that we take. And the other thing about doing a radio show, or I think any of this marketing is you do need to be true to yourself. I'm right. I mean, like, like, 
it doesn't work if it's just you trying to like be something that you think they want you to be. So I think the more authentic that you can approach any of these sort of like cold marketing approaches it is helpful because you will attract the right people too, right? You don't sort of want to attract a lead on a false premise and then they come in and it's not really who you are or what the firm's about. And so I think that, that that's pretty key as well. The, the challenge with radio, I think for, for most people too, is that you don't start a radio show and the next week you're like, oh, I got 15 leads. Like, this is great, right? So what happens with a radio show is we have people now that come in and they go, I've been listening to John for four years and now I'm retiring. And I always laugh and I go, oh, you're one of the like six people. Geez, I mean, are you trying to go to sleep when you're listening to the show? I mean, I know it's not that good. I appreciate it, you know, but but I mean, they're laughing. They're like, no, we love the show. Like, it's great, you know? And it kind of gives me a renewed sort of excitement. Like, oh, like some people actually feel like they're getting some value out of this, you know? But, but I mean, so it's a slow burn process. And I think for a lot of marketing advisors start, they go, yeah, I should market. They start and then it doesn't work quite as well as they would have liked at the beginning, mostly because as you've talked about with your blog, like you're not as good at it because you haven't done it very much yet. Right. And so there's, there's not enough staying power to just get over the hump and actually get some critical mass and just improve upon what you're doing regarding that marketing. And so if you're kind of thinking about this in seven minute segments, is that literally like over the span of an hour, you're going to have seven, eight, nine different instances of prompting this. And just remember, folks, when was the last time your CPA reviewed your tax return? Well, if they haven't, we'd be happy to do it. Give us a call at <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Like just that kind of call to action over and over and over again every every seven minutes or so. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, oftentimes the middle of the segment call to action is a much shorter one. So it'll just be like, hey, if you want to chat with us, go to keystonewealthpartners.com, right? Like, so I mean, like, it, but I'm, but I'm making it available. And then I may go into like a longer sort of call to action at the, at the end of like the first 30 minutes and the end of the show, you know? So like, it's, a, it's, it, I am positioning it, but I'm not kind I mean, I'm trying to stay away from people don't, don't want to listen to a show that's just an infomercial, right? So you, you do kind of want to stay away from that. But you also, I've had other people that they do the show and it's just not clear at all what someone would want to do to work with them, right? And so you're like, well, I hope you enjoy the radio show and it's fun for you, but no clients are ever going to come because you're not actually telling them like what the next step is. Like what would they do to actually engage you, you know? And so I think that, I think that's a, that is a, a balancing act though, and a very fine line that you walk when you're doing a radio show. And your primary action points at the end of the day, it just sounds like either it's, it's give us a call insert phone number here or check out our website, www.keystonewealthpartners.com. Yeah, we, we have one call to action. It's get okay. the retirement map review. It's a one page roadmap that overviews your entire financial plan. By the way, everything that I'm sharing with you today, I could, I reserve the right to be completely wrong. on. <laughs> this is just my experience and how it's worked for me on a very tiny sample size. But because there are advisors that say like, you know, at one, one of their calls to action will be, Hey, if you want my new, you know, my newest book, call in and, and we'll send you a copy. Right. And then they try to nurture that relationship or they'll say, Hey, we've got, you know, a live event on how to reduce your taxes in retirement over at the library, you know, uh, in your town, check our website for dates and sign up for this, you know, this seminar or whatever we've, I, I, I have found that if I can make the call to action as clean and clear as possible, that's going to be most effective because think about it. You have them go to a seminar. What's the goal at the end of the seminar? What is what is the outcome you're hoping to achieve at the end of the seminar? Usually get an appointment. Bingo. Why do I want to send them to a different marketing funnel that's going to have the exact same call to action? So we've always just said one thing. I mean, so, and, and it's worked really well for us to do it that way. 
So all all roads bleed back to the retirement map review, which is your kind of one page plan, gather some information, show them some opportunities. If you would like our help to implement these, we would be happy to work with you. Exactly. And we we do we do that's a two appointment process. And at the end of the map, I just say, basically, are you a cat and your money to us? Or do you want to just, you know, do you want to stay doing what you're doing? And I always tell them like, there's no pressure at all. And I, but we're, we're very right. clear in the process, like how we onboard clients and when they're going to, when we're going to ask them if they'd like to move forward. We don't require them to. It's not like a all, hey, you have to decide today or you're never talking to us again. But we make it very clear, like, here's how we make it simple to keep the process going out of this visit. Because at the end of the day, you when you've got channels that are driving through 800 first appointments, 500 qualified, I think you said 200 new clients, like about 40% of the qualified folks who meet and go through the process become clients. Like if you're confident you can make more appointments appear and you're consistently closing about 40% of them, like if it's if you're not a fit, like it's cool. We're we're just gonna part ways and <laughs> gonna do the next phone call, which may be a better fit, and we'll work with that person instead. Yeah, and our and our goal is to give them a lot of value, even if they don't become a client. I tell them that at the beginning. I'm like, there is zero pressure to become a client. I want this to be super helpful for you. And if at the end you think you want to work with us and it's a good fit and we think it makes sense, like we'll make it really easy to get started and you can cancel whenever you want. You know, you're not signing your life away with a 20-year contract. Like we think we're gonna work together for a long time, but the first step is just saying, All right, I'll pay you guys every quarter as long as I'm happy and I'll fire you if you're not adding value. You know, and so like that's kind of how I present it. And we have a lot of people that leave. Because that is too quick of a process for them. And six months later, they call us back and they're like, ah, I did a map six months ago. Like, I'm ready to go. And they just needed more time. And we never require that they aren't allowed that time. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like that whole thing too, what I was saying about trying to, you know, trying to shoehorn these people that aren't good for the firm. It's like, you know, if you're still dating someone seven or eight years later and you're in therapy and you've had all, it's like, maybe you just shouldn't get married. Like maybe, you, you know, like this might just not be a good fit. Like, you know, like, why are we trying to make, there's like, hundreds of thousands of financial advisors and like 330 million people in America. Like we're probably not right for everyone. <laughs> like, like, and that's okay. And so I think, yeah, I think it's easy to say that when you have a lot of first appointments, but it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. I was taking that approach when, you know, I, I was starving and didn't have any AUM. Right. And so like, right. I can say that, that that's probably part of what led us to this growth is that people sense when you're desperate, like, like people sense like, oh, this person really, really wants my business. That's not attractive. Right. And so I think there's, there's a level of like confidence and just saying like, let's check, let, let's check each other out and see how it goes right. that, pe- that make people want to work with you. Right. And I think you see that in the bigger firms just continuing to get bigger. So I, I guess I'm, I'm still just trying to process <laughs> like it's an hour every week. So it sounds like this is not an a two person interview style thing or or a live call in show. This is mostly just you monologuing. I mean, I guess monologuing in an education context, but like this is primarily you talking for an hour every week. That's exactly right. My parents chuckle about it all the time. They're like, "This is perfect for you." <laughs> okay, so this may be just a little bit of personality. <laughs> like you're one of those people where turn on the microphone and talk for an hour every week is just like. I got this. I talked to a bunch of prospects this week. My mind is brimming with recent conversations I've had with people that I think would be instructive to some other people. So I'm just going to start sharing what's been going on in planning conversations this week in appropriate and on-mized context. And lo and behold, like, oh, <laughs> it's been an hour. We're, we're done, folks. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, I think I really enjoy it. And I think whatever you're doing, you want to be you know excited to do it. 
like wh- whatever the marketing is I, or whatever you're doing to build your practice or the type of clients you want to work with. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like it needs to be something you're passionate about and excited about and feel like you're helping people doing it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the radio show is probably a lot like you do this podcast where I have a rough outline and then it, it kind of just fills in for the show. But I, I try to have a level of cadence where I'm not just all over the place and there's no consistency to it. So there, there's a little structure. And then outside of that, I, it's just me talking. And can you just walk us through a little bit? Just like, what is the rough structure? I mean, how do you think about the structure of filling the hour in a, in a radio show? I have the exact you know, outline of exactly what I talk about from the, and I'll pull it up. I talk about a random story topic in the news around finance. I provide a quote. I do a short call to action. Then I do my rules for money. I share something that I think is a rule for money. And then I do a long call to action. Segment two. So I'm a Christian. Faith is a big part about, of my life. I share a Bible verse, tie in how that matters in our life. Um, and by the way, we, I mean, we have clients of all different faiths. Like it's not like only people that are Christians are like, you know, but, but I, but I share like, that's meaningful to me. That's important to me. Hey, here's something that I think is, you know, we can take away for the week. Uh, I give a personal story around stewardship, kind of like a story around why we can make a difference with our money. I told you we have a chief of investor behavior. That's a, a CFP and also a doctor of psychology. So we focus a lot on like, you know, if we do a lot of things really well and reduce your taxes and you die with more money in your IRA, is that actually winning? <laughs> like, is that better? Like, cool. I died with 3 million instead of 2.2 million, but we never even considered why any of it mattered. Like that's not really winning. So we spend a lot of focus in my radio show as well as with clients on like, hey, none of this matters actually, if we don't figure out what truly is important to you and how you're going to align the money in a meaningful way. And, you know, I think United Capital did a great job, uh, like kind of building that whole financial life management, you know, kind of that concept around really, truly understanding why any of this matters from a life standpoint. And and we think that's important too. So I focus on, you know, I I do focus the radio show some on that. And then I basically kind of go through similar type of structure, you know, on, on, in segments three and four. And what do you spend to do this? Like, what does it cost to run one hour week weekly radio on an ongoing basis that's producing hundreds of leads? We spend about twenty thousand a month. Okay. And and how do you like measure or think about the the ROI of twenty grand a month, two hundred and forty thousand a year? Like, how do you, how do you decide this was a good spend? We should spend more. We should spend less. Well, the first thing is to do this type of marketing, it has to all be tracked and measured, right? So, so we have a company called Track That Advisor. It's it's a so if people are if people are listening, I mean, it is unbelievable the depth of our tracking and measurements of every single dollar we spend for marketing. So I know which stations are producing leads, which aren't. How much that station's costing, you know? So like I know all of these specific numbers. On if every client that we you know that we that we acquired left us in twelve months, what's our ROI? If they left us in three years, what's the ROI? If it's you know we we know this is an industry with really high retention rates, right? And and in our case, I mean it's v- even higher than industry normals norms because it's really hard to ha- fire your advisor. It's particularly hard to fire your advisor, your CPA, and your attorney all at once. And so I know that we're going to have ninety eight, ninety nine percent retention year to year. But even if we didn't, what's the ROI? Right, because the other the other thing is you can't say, well, in in 19 years we'll make money as long as these people stay with us. But you know, you go broke in the process trying to fund your market. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, so the the ROI has to be has to be reasonable. To put it to put it more broadly, you know, we brought in 170 million of new monies, spending about 700 thousand on marketing. So I mean, we're very very profitable in 12 months, and most 98 99 percent of those clients will stay a long time. So it's really just how can you 
continue to provide a great deliverable in the midst of growth. The only constraints on growth is just, you know, people getting the right quality of people, which I really believe in. You know, you can't just like interchange advisors and say, well, they're all advisors. They'll be fine. So, you know, those are really our, our sort of kinks in the hose is office space, the right people, you know, all of those sorts of things, not, not monetary, not do we have enough money to market. And so help me understand, like, what does track that advisor do in particular? Like, what is that company or service? So our director of marketing interfaces with that company, basically every lead that calls in like from a radio show that goes into it's, it's, it's all in Excel. It goes in there and I can toggle between all sorts of different pages within Excel that show me different measurements of ROI from campaigns, from uh, specific you know channels, whatever it might be. And then we can make better, more informed decisions. I mean, there's a lot of times where I say, why are we doing this? This doesn't work, you know? <laughs> and, and our director of marketing is like, uh, the last two have been bad. Like the four before that, we brought in $7 million. Like, what are you talking about, John? I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I'm glad that we tracked that. Cause like, it feels like it's not going well, you know? And so, I mean, it's really tough to know where to deploy money most efficiently if you're not on top of that. So I'm, so I'm sure I'm going to oversimplify this and not do it justice, but can my interpretation that is track that advisor essentially, they build a super awesome, very deep Excel tracking system to be able to take all of your marketing information, dissect the heck out of it and surface it back to you in useful ways. And so at the end of the day, you pay them to gather all the data plug it into their super cool tracking tool and get the report output that they're giving you to tell you how to effectively deploy your $700,000 or at least yeah. tell you which deployments of your $700,000 are working well such that you should put more dollars there. Exactly. And it's all customizable. So we've had them add specific things. You know, like I, I at one point was going, is our, you know, do we close the same percentage if someone's a currently a do-it-yourselfer versus someone who's already working with another advisor? Right. And things like that. And so, so we said, well, that, that would be helpful for us to know. And so we started adding a lot of different things such as that to be more informed and, you know, to, to just create a better process, hopefully adding more value along the way. And in turn, if you add more value, you'll hopefully, you know, have a better business and have more clients. And out of curiosity, what does it cost for the track that advisor service? I think it's like 250 bucks a month or something like that. Okay. So not inexpensive relative to tools and outsourcing and quote unquote, a, a spreadsheet. Again, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm oversimplifying their thing. They're going so to be so offended when they hear this. They're going to be like, it's not a spreadsheet, Michael. You should see this thing. I, I am, Look, I'm a, I'm a data nerd. So I, I believe me, I have such an appreciation for like b- beautiful data tracking. <laughs> but but I mean, I mean this in the positive way that like, you know, if you're not doing a lot of marketing, $3,000 for marketing tracking is expensive. If you're deploying $700,000 on marketing and this helps you get a, a, a two to one or three to one ROI instead of one to one, like $3,000 to deploy the 700000 better is like a ginormous return. Yeah, it's valuable. And, it, and whether you use track that advisor or, you know, do this in house, I'm just saying like, it's very hard to build like no, you know, large company in other industries has a marketing plan. And then you go, how did that work the last quarter? And they go, I don't really know. We've got, you know, we brought in some business. Grew. Like, yeah, like, more clients like, than we used to. Like other See companies have entire departments, like tracking meticulously where every dollar yep. goes and what the ROI is, right? And so I think historically too, when we go to do marketing as as financial advisors, like we're not trained in marketing. Like I'm not trained in marketing, you know? So it's like, I don't know. I like to help it clients and 
I like my job and add value and give them good guidance. And then you go, well, it would be kind of nice to grow more. And so we're sort of like accidental marketers. And, and I think sometimes we're, and I know I've been guilty of this before, where you're kind of just throwing stuff against the wall saying like, I think that like this might work. And, and you don't really even know if it works, right? You do it for like six months and you go, seems like it's worked. So I think that the, the ability to really look at the data closely is really important if you want to make a, a sizable investment in marketing. And how long did it take for radio to work? We started seeing some positive ROI within 12 months, but it's 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 exponentially grown the longer we've been doing it. Well, I'm struck even from that that I get I get the exponential growth in the long run, but like, yeah, it's $240,000 a year and you're like, we started seeing some positive ROI in 12 months. Like that's Well, well keep in mind though. I mean, I started commit. <laughs> I started on one station at like 4 in the morning in Phoenix. <laughs> you know, that was like okay. the number 22 station. I mean, you know what I mean? It's like no, I started spending like less than a thousand dollars a month when I did it, right? I mean, okay. So, so, so we're kind of seeing like the, the this point of the journey right now in our conversation. It like, I mean, this all happened over seven years, and yeah, that's fast. But like, I mean, the journey was 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 arduous. I mean, there was there was a lot of times where I'm like, I'm an idiot. Like, nobody wants to hear me on the radio. <laughs> We've got no calls for three weeks. Like, who's up at four in the morning? Maybe somebody taking like their grandma to the airport. Like, what? You know what I mean? It's like. Yeah. This isn't working. Like, why did somebody else tell me radio would work? You know, cool. It might work for them because they're good on the radio. It's not working for me. So like hear all of this through, you know, like years of refining it and scaling it up. I mean, everything we're doing now, we're doing at a lot higher volume because we have 30 people and we've got a bunch of CFPs and stuff. Like we didn't have that. At first it was me. You know, it was like me and an assistant in 2014. And that was Keystone, you know? So it's, it's changed a lot over the years. So now talk to us a little bit about some of the other channels. You said like about 40% of flow came from radio, but you also were doing webinars and in-person events. So what what's going on on the webinar front? All different types of topics. They're marketed on Facebook and people just sign up for them. The nice thing about those is that I do not need to record those live, right? So any in-person events, like I was showing up or one of our advisors has to show up. And so those are a little bit limited just from, from a scale standpoint where webinars, you can record it and you can have people joining webinars every single day. And I know you do webinars like for the industry, right? Oh, yeah. So you understand this. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's really nice for me to do a really good job doing one 60 minute webinar. And then we use it for six months and we're just seeing leads coming in, right? So like that, that, that's what I love about that as a parent to seven kids and running this company is like, like that gives me some of my life back yet we can still be marketing. And so what, like, what would a typical webinar be about? What, like, what are you covering on a webinar? estate planning, driving income in retirement, tax taxes, how taxes change as you lead toward retirement. Because we're really focusing on that person that's nearing or entering retirement. It's not that we don't have any younger clients, but like that is the focus, is that that person. And so it's a lot of things that that are subjects around that. And then we just do a webinar. At the end, we say, click on this Calendly link if you want to schedule a visit with us. And what's the like? What's the marketing campaign to do it in the in the first place? I mean, just how are you how are you making this appear on Facebook? Uh, we use outside companies, so we use. I'm trying to think of who the companies are. White Glove. I think some people might be familiar with them. Okay, we use them. They they do in person and webinars. So, so what happened really was during the pandemic, all of these companies that supported live events were like, "Oh, cool, we're out of business if we don't if like <laughs> we don't figure something else out, right?" 
So, uh-huh. so you had reinvent, like, reinvent yeah, you had like yeah. steep and white. I mean, they were doing what all of us advisors were doing. We're like, well, we used to meet with people kneecap to kneecap. Like that's not happening. So I guess we need to like figure out how to use Zoom, right? And and so they were all doing the same thing. So a lot of these companies have have predominantly been in person companies who now are you know doing both basically. And they got in the webinar game. And webinars, you know, were were even more effective during COVID, just like a lot of things. I'm right. I mean, people were sitting at home. And so right, right. we we're, trapped we're, at home, like nothing to do, may as well. Yeah. I mean, like, like it's up. like a you know, it's a 60-year-old sitting at the house scrolling through Facebook, looking at their grandkids' <laughs> pictures, and they're like, Oh, I may as well see about taxes and retirement. What else am I gonna do today? You know, so I mean, like there was there was that component that we saw with, you know, the Robin Hood craze and and online gambling and all these things that just like went crazy because everybody's cooped up at home. So webinars you know, came out of the gate just extremely hot. And you know, we had before that we were doing in-person events on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. I mean, so we were doing like eight in-person events a month, and those just shut down. They were gone, right? During COVID. And so we hadn't done webinars until that. And so they're marketed through, there's a company called Steep that does it as well, but we basically pay them for an area, you know, a geographic area, and then they charge us and 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 we don't know sort of how the sausage is made. I mean, they're, they're arbitraging what they charge us and what it's costing them within Facebook's algorithm to, you know, fill the sure, room I mean, that- basically, you know? And so they just say, here's the cost to you. I, I don't know how, you know, I don't really know where their margins are on it, but it's helpful for us because they just fill the room. And then we're able to so do what basically we're basically the deal. You'll tell them like I guess it comes from them, but like you want fifty people in the in the in the room for your for your event. Like we know our marketing process. It's going to cost five thousand dollars to put fifty people in the room, and you write the check for five thousand dollars, and then you do your event, and there'll be about fifty people in the room. Yeah, and the thing that I like about the webinars that I think other advisors will appreciate if they if they choose to go this route is they charge you for her, who actually shows up on the webinar. So that that's kind of nice because you're not paying this huge amount up front and then going, well, what if you only get me five people? You know, this is like my whole quarterly marketing spend. And if this doesn't work, then what am I going to do the next three months? And so, you know, if they get a ton of people, it's actually kind of funny because we had a few where the, 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 the attendees were just, it was, it was massive, which is enormous. Right. And so, you know, our director of marketing is like, oh, John, this webinar this week is, I mean, it's crazy how many people are going to be on it. You know, my first thought is like, Oh man, that's going to be a crazy expensive webinar. <laughs> like you know, like I hope we get people off that because they're charging you literally per person that that shows up in the webinar. But it, but oh, you know, so it's from, a good thing. Oh, so from from their end, like they run an ad and get a surprisingly large turnout. Like they just charge you more. Like, yeah. I mean, to be fair, because they're charging you per per registered attendee. So if you can convert them, everybody's winning here. But. Exactly. It works both ways. And I'm just sort of trusting yeah, that no. they're not having like their third cousins signing up for my webinar so they can make more money. But I, I probably wouldn't actually ever know, you know? So there's a little mutual trust there. But I think it works out well because if the, if the event's not as successful, theoretically, you shouldn't have to pay as much. And so from your end, like, so do you pick the webinar, what the webinar topic's going to be that you want to offer? Or do they even tell you and package that for you? You just literally have to like show up and do the webinar off a script and then they market it. So to get started, if you want to keep it simple, they have like slides, presentations, all of that that they've even developed as part of their value proposition. I don't use those. I like to build out my own, but, but if you're, if you're, you know, if somebody's sitting there going, well, that'd be a barrier to entry. I don't really want to have to build out a whole pre like you can start by just saying, Hey, I want to do one of these a quarter. You know, I I can only do 25 people max for like the kind of spend. So I want it capped at 25 people and uh, assuming that it's not a super hot in demand location, you know, where they're going, well, we don't really want to give you this and only do 25 because somebody else is going to pay us for 
you know, 50. But I think in general, they would, you would be able to start there and, and then just use one of their presentations, you know? So I think, I think that that's very much a, a doable sort of walking before you run approach if you haven't done webinars before to dip your toe in the water. But at the end of the day, like you set the topic, it sounds like at this point you're setting your own, but it, historically they, you could, you could use one of theirs. You record the webinar, you give them the webinar and tell them who you're going after. And then their job at the end of the day is to create a Facebook campaign, run the campaign, have people go from the Facebook campaign to the webinar do the webinar thing at the end of the webinar it has some kind of call to action to schedule an appointment at the end of the day you just get appointments that start appearing on your calendar based on the webinar you recorded and the campaign they ran exactly and and i think it's important to bring to sort of bring this full circle all of these things work in in, in tandem with our offering being compelling and our deliverable deliverable so like none of this marketing worked as well for me when i was a solo advisor that didn't have cpas and attorneys and i couldn't talk about that on the webinar and i couldn't say we can do your taxes so like the other part of this is like again the actual work you end up doing and the offering still at the end of the day has to be compelling and adding massive value or none of this you can't just market your way in an, in a recurring revenue business you know so, so at the end of the day, that still has to be the focus. Like the marketing's great because it gets people in the door. But my main focus every day is how do we continue to add more value? Because that's the only way any of this works. People have been asking me, how do you get these referrals, John? How did you get these referrals? And it's like, what program do you use? No, I'm not saying, you know, I get paid two ways. One is from you and one is from your referral. You know, like we're not, because think about it in your life, Michael. Like if, if, if somebody says, hey, my kid needs braces and, and you have an awesome orthodontist across the street. Like you're like, oh yeah, my kids, ha-, like the orthodontist across the street is great. Like our kids love, like fantastic, right? And you refer them because they're referable because your experience was great. There's all these programs about how to get more referrals. And it's like, no, you're not going to refer that orthodontist to your friend and and risk, you know, that's reputational damage because that orthodontist said they'll send you a $10 Starbucks gift card and give you a free rubber band on your next braces. Like, like that's not compelling you to refer that person. Like it's your friend, you care about them. And so getting more referrals, I think is a direct, for me, I see the more referrals we get every year as, as sort of validation. This is resonating with people. Our clients believe that what we're doing is way more valuable than what they were getting before because they're telling all of their friends about it. And so to me, that that to me is the best barometer, not how many first appointments we have for marketing, not it's just how many referrals did we get last year and what's our retention rate? Because those two things tell me that people, retention just says, hey, people aren't really upset. They're, they're happy enough to not leave. And referrals are like, hey, we have advocates. Like we've created people that actually believe so heavily in, in what we're doing that they're telling other people. And that fuels our marketing too, because some of our marketing events are just filled from like a client telling a friend like, hey, go to this event. So in most of our marketing, we have a few non-cold leads too that have come through other things. And so when you bring all of this together, like the one other thing I'm wondering is just who who fields 800 lead inquiries? I mean, just how, like, what do you do with that volume? Who's Who's feeling all that and what do you do with them? Well, fortunately, they don't come all at once. Uh, that's over a year, obviously. Well, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> but but we have but still a couple of day all day all year long. Like that, yeah, no, that's we, a lot of flow. We have three cl- what we call client coordinators that do a lot more than just you know sit at the front desk. Like they are following up on all the radio leads. They're they're you know sending out first appointment packets. They're rescheduling appointments. I mean, we we did thirty two hundred current client visits last year on top of the eight hundred 
you know, first appointments. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot, our office has a lot of activity. And as, as a former airline pilot, I can relate to this because before I was in finance, I was an airline pilot. And, you know, like one of the things that I think translates really well is because an airline pilot, like you do everything based on systems, right? So my mind thinks systematically, like everything is a process. Like, so every single aspect of our business is systematized. Like it's exact same for every single person. All of our client coordinators do it the exact same way. Like there is a flow to every single thing that we do, you know, the appointment process and all of that. And that comes from my days as being a pilot, because, you know, you get, you, you get in the airplane and it's like, you're not just deciding to not do your checklist. Like when you push off the gate at LAX, like you're doing it right. And so, and the other thing is sometimes people go, well, with this lead flow, how are you able to, you know, like your question with all of these calls and stuff, like, how are you able to, I think one of the first thoughts, like with that level of volume, can you do a good job? Right. Cause I mean, I've had other advisors that I just talked with. They're like, well, how do you actually like do good planning? Like, how are you, how is that like retirement map even going to be valuable when you have to do that many of them, you know? And again, going back to my pilot days, I think we're way better at things that we do a lot. Like when I was you know, a starving advisor and I didn't have any lead flow and I'd get one first appointment every month. I wasn't very good at the first appointment. (laughs) Like, like I was kind of like trying to make it up as I went and like figure it out and do, but like I hadn't done a lot of first appointments, you know? And so I think like when you do something over and over, like you would probably say like, Hey, I'm better at the blog now that I've done it, you know, all these different times or like I'm better at the podcast. And And that's exactly how I feel is like, we are better at what we do and deliver because we have all of this collective wisdom from hundreds of appointments and figuring out what people want and what they like and what doesn't work in an appointment and what does work. The bigger the sample size, the more, you know, the better that you'll be at that. And so I actually think like our volume is, is useful in us building more value for the client. So what surprised you the most about trying to build an advisory business? Oh, so many things. Probably more than anything is the, the, the moment that you have too many clients to take care of yourself, right? I mean, I think that's a, a, an inflection point for a lot of advisors. It's, it's when you have to make that decision, like, am I just going to kind of like, you know, do more of what we dub the lifestyle practice, right? Which is awesome. I mean, I think people have some amazing lives doing a life, you know, just saying, hey, I'm going to be a solo advisor and, and manage a couple hundred million or whatever they're at and say like, man, I make some really good margins and money. And, you know, I have good relationships with my clients. But the moment that you say, no, I think I want to grow bigger than me. That is a huge, because, because once you decide that really the success or failure of the business isn't marketing, it isn't any, it's all about the, the quality of the people that you're hiring, right? I mean, like that's what it ends up coming down to, because you're going to go to that, that first group of people that you go to and you say, Hey, now some of you are going to work with this other person. That's the hardest transition, right? Because all of those people are like, wait a second, like we, we've only ever talked to you. We've never, we've literally never talked to anyone else at your entire company. And so, I mean, that what surprised me was I've made a lot of, I think, really good hires and we, we've had good employee retention and like, we've got a really good culture, I think, but you know, I've also like made my share of mistakes in hiring. And just uh, like I alluded to earlier on the podcast, I mean, the, the impact of making bad hiring mistakes is pretty significant. And so that's probably surprised me more than anything. It's like, it stops becoming more about you and way more about the team collectively. So what was the low point on this journey? I was an independent advisor, registered rep. My wife and I were, we, we have a, a couple of boys that we adopted from Ethiopia. So we're over in Africa and I'm, I'm looking at all this extreme poverty. And I'm going, you know what, what am I doing with my life? Like I'm, I'm, I'm selling a bunch of commissionable products. And it's like, I mean, I'm making a decent living, but I don't really like, you know, it, it just was like something was missing. And so I go to this nonprofit organization that I was just doing some amazing stuff over there in Ethiopia. And I'm going, Hey, like, would you guys be able to use my wife and I, I mean, I was literally thinking like, like hang this up. So like, like, like what if I just did something that quote unquote mattered? Like this doesn't feel like it's mattering. And, and I'll never forget 
Guy goes, John, we have more than enough people on the ground here. Like we need money. Like we need resources. He's like, can you go back and like continue to build your business and then support us? And it was like, wait, that's the least sexy answer of all time. Like that's not exciting for me. Like you want me to <laughs> like go I be was, a financial advisor? Like, is it, like I was ready yeah. to quit my, like I was ready to quit my job and go into a tire change in life's mission. And you're like, and they're saying like, eh, why don't you just go home and scale your business and like cut us a really sweet check? That would be awesome. Yeah. It is like, oh, oh wow. But you know, is this a reminder that like, <laughs> that really, if we can align like meaningful parts of our lives with, with our money, like it does make a difference and everyone has a role to play. And so that was sort of this renewed, you know, sort of this renewed fervor to say, you know what? And shortly thereafter, I left the broker dealer. I started, you know, I started the RIA. I, I went, you know, so, so I made a lot of changes, not just because of that, but in part because of that. And then the other one would just be for those, those that are listening to like marketing and, and thinking about marketing, like a ton of marketing doesn't work and you're dejected. I mean, I, I did so many workshops where I would show up and there'd be two people there and like, neither of them had any money and they were like, you know what I mean? Like they were disinterested. And I'm like, you know, I'm driving home at nine o'clock at night. I've got all these kids. My wife's been taking care of the, the household so I can go, you know, do this marketing. And I'm driving home on the freeway, just going like, this is my life. Like, what is wrong with me? You know what I mean? Like, like this isn't working. And so I think that there've been so many of those moments where you don't see exactly how it's going to work at the end. You know, there's a belief, but you don't know how exactly it'll work. And so, I, you know, I, I would just want to encourage, like it, encourage people that have had ups and downs with marketing, like join the club. I've had just as many downs, I feel like as ups. And that's kind of just normal. So what do you know now about the building and scaling process you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago as you were still in the early days? 10 years ago. Yeah. Just, I, I think just focusing first and foremost on the client and on hiring the right people. I mean, I, I think that most owner advisors, like if you suggested to them, Hey, you're kind of interchangeable with any other owner, <laughs> you know? Hey, Michael, anybody else could do the podcast. You'd be like, what? Like personally offended. You know, you'd be like, wait, no, I'm good at this podcast. Like I've built this. And I, and I think you're right, by the way. But I think sometimes we think with our support staff or with our advisors, like, hey, I just need to fill this role because we're short in this department. And, and compromising there has such a, a, a detrimental impact. So I'd rather run with you know, us all working a little bit more to, to find, to take more time to find the right person. And I think at times along the way, I was so focused on, we are short staffed for our growth. We are short staffed. And I would get someone in kind of knowing this probably might not be the right fit. And so that's what I would tell myself is just, you know, you, you cannot compromise on the quality of the advisors and the team that you have in place. Cause I was going to ask, I, I don't feel like anyone says like, Oh, well, you know, John, thanks for letting me know to focus on clients first and hiring good people because like I wasn't thinking about that. Uh, right? Like I, I feel like it's natural for us. I don't mean to be blithe about that because we do sometimes have some slip ups or we do things that, you know, maybe we thought were were better decisions at the time than they turn out to be after the fact. So I, I, I was wondering, like, you know, given that I'm sure you've had some mindset about this throughout, like where were the actual gaps or cracks occurring where at least in retrospect, you weren't making those client first or higher right decisions. So it sounds like one of them was just the business got growing fast and, and you, and you started compromising on hiring standards because you just needed to get a person in because of the volume of stuff. Is that, is that where things started, started slipping or breaking? Well, I think in general, you're balancing as you're scaling a business between, you know, being an owner and, and, and it, 
any hire that you make. And certainly the more quality, the higher, the more expensive they are. And so I think it wasn't that I was like in, in a lot of cases, you know, hiring someone who was just, oh, this person's terrible. It was just, you know what? The optimal person's probably going to cost a little bit more money and being willing to say, and I think I have in many cases, but being that's one thing I've really learned is that like you are, you know, a, a great, a great team member is worth a lot more than even a pretty good one. So if they're a little bit more expensive, the exponential value that you get from that person is so great that you're always better off reaching for that. And as the owner saying, I'm going to make less money. That's the biggest problem is that along the way, there's all these points where you're like, you know what, if I just kind of slow down or I, we, we change a little bit, like I'll make more money as the owner of the firm. And I always, you know, tried to focus on, yeah, but like if we can help more people and I can get that really good person you know, over to our firm, like we're going to collectively be so much better. But I think that's a, that's a difficult process while you're scaling. So what advice would you give to younger, like newer advisors still getting started? I think you really have two options. And this is what I talked about at the top of the top of the podcast. I mean, I think at this point as an advisor, you have two choices. You either get extremely niche, right? And differentiate by saying, yes, I'm only, you know, I'm a young advisor. I don't have his level of experience. I don't have as much AUM, but I am super specialized in this one area, right? And I know you've talked and written a lot about this. And then, but, but so the second thing is if you're not going to do that, you have to figure out a way to have more services for similar costs to other firms. You've got to be better at a lot of different things or way better at one thing to really compete. And so, you know, that, that would be, that would be my advice is you, you kind of got to go all in on one of those two two ventures. And, and that's why I meet with some younger advisors in our area that want to catch up and meet and grab coffee. And the second one, you know, the latter of those two is really expensive and takes a long time. The former of saying, I'm just going to get really, really niche is much more doable for a 27 year old advisor that doesn't have a lot of AUM yet, right? Which is why I think that's probably still the right approach for most newer advisors or you try to you you try to join a firm that's already doing all those things and really learn and have some opportunities at a firm that's growing that is doing those. I think it's hard right now as a young advisor to come in and compete against the bigger firms that are doing those things. So I think you know getting very niche is probably the way to go if you're not going to join one of the one of the other firms. So what comes next for you at this point? Well, quite a lot actually. We have entered an agreement to be a division of creative planning, and so oh of. Peter Malouk's creative planning. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, and I know you're familiar with with Peter and and creative planning, but they are basically a much larger and much larger version of us. And I have in a lot of ways tried to emulate their service offering as we've grown. Because they have that similar one-stop shop philosophy. I know, you know, creative planning has tried to bring the the attorneys the accountants all under all under one umbrella in a very similar structure. Yep, yeah, and and that's why I mean this wasn't about me. I mean this is definitely n- not an exit for me. I'm in my 30s. To me this is the beginning. And I just I just kind of looked at it and said what's gotten us from 0 to 650 million, you know, isn't what's going to get us from 650 million to 6.5 billion. So if we're looking at how do we 10x, what would that take? What sort of infrastructure would we need rather than trying to do it on our own like if there's this similar firm that's much larger that has the infrastructure that has the this a great offering great culture like all the national respect i mean all, what they went to like 50 billion organically right i mean it's just it's yeah. unbelievable their story with no acquisitions or anything at the time you know i i just looked at it and this wasn't about me wanting to go to a larger firm this was all about creative planning this was specifically about this is a larger version of us that will help us even deepen you know instead of three people in the tax department will have 50 instead of being licensed attorneys in you know 
two states were licensed in 50 states, you know, or, or whatever it's most all 50 states. Right. So, so that was my thinking was we're going to be able to actually do things even better and hopefully avoid some of the growing pains of being this sort of like middle-sized firm, you know, which is which is challenging because we're competing against creative planning at our size, but they're a lot bigger than us and have a lot more resources. And so that I'm ex- I'm really excited about this next sort of chapter, you know, in the journey of of learning a lot of new things from a firm that's done a lot of things really well. And so how do you I guess just think about or get comfortable with the shift of of going from you know, owning your entire enterprise, right? Just for all of that kind of mindset that some of us get around being being founder, being owner, being able to control the decisions, to being you know a, a part of a much larger firm, right? The the upshot is a lot of additional infrastructure and resources, right? Like instead of three people in tax, you get fifty. Instead of a couple of states, you can serve almost all states for for the legal practice. But there's a, I'm presuming, a pretty significant shift in just control of what you can do because you're now plugging into a much larger system. So just how do you think about that as a as an owner as a founder and making that transition since you're you're a young guy like this isn't a exit liquidity event drop mic stage left. Well, I, yeah, and I think it all comes down to the trust in the firm. And that's why I wasn't really just looking to, you know, to to sell or join some other firm, but specifically in the vision moving forward that creative planning has, I believe 100% in it. And so I think it was one of those where I, you have to have a little bit of humility and self-awareness to say, you know, I may have done a decent job getting it to where it's at right now. And I believe in how we're doing things, but am I the best person for the next five or 10 years to unilaterally make the decisions for this company? Like, or do I think there are other people that are really smart? that can come alongside us and support what we're doing and we can do it together. You know, and and that was really the the thinking behind creative planning is like they're probably better at getting us from 30 employees to 100. Like they've already done it. Like by multiples, you know? And so and so why would I want to try to do that on my own when there's a like-minded firm out there that I that I totally believe in and respect who want to make us a part of what they're doing? So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so you know, you've had this wonderful path of building incredibly successful advisory firm and growing to $650 million over the past seven years and now the, you know, the, the next stage of the journey coming up. So the, the, the business is going so well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that I know what success is not. And it's not having more money, right? I mean, that's what our that's what our culture says, right? If you if you somebody says, "Oh, he's successful," <laughs> like what do they mean? That person has money, you know. She's successful. I think success is is certainly not that, and it's more about using the talents and the resources that God has given us. We all have this unique, you know, we're, we're all unique people in this unique phase of life and and on our own journeys. And and how do we use those gifts and those skills, not just to make our lives better, but to try to lift other people up? And so I think if at the end of your life, you look back and you say, you know what, with what I was given, I, I think I made a positive impact. Like I think I filled people's, you know, buckets up more than took away from it. Then that to me is success. And this business a long time ago became a lot less about me trying to make more money or or me trying to be successful and a lot more about how do I provide an amazing place for all of these people that work for me and these clients that are entrusting us for their lives to be better. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you so much, John, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.